Welcome to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. With over 150 years of experience and deep industry knowledge, Weber Wenzel is the leading full-service law firm on the African continent. The rapid spread of COVID-19 is first and foremost a public health challenge which has affected everyone in the world and has forced governments and particularly the healthcare sector to respond swiftly to ensure that the lives of the people of our country are protected. But it's not only the healthcare sector that has felt the brunt of this pandemic. Other sectors, especially retail, have felt real serious consequences, not just of the virus, but of the subsequent national shutdown. We've seen Edcon, the 100-year-old company that has made Edgar's a part of South Africa's landscape, announce it is going into business rescue. The reason is not hard to see. The lockdowns have seen, of course, the complete shutting of large shopping centers. Only grocery stores and pharmacies could operate, but with time restrictions and only allowing a few customers into the store at a time. Although we are seeing some relaxations and food and pharmaceutical sales can continue, the loss in other retail activity will still lead to the economy losing a lot of steam, especially from these retail businesses. The global pandemic has also sparked a very likely global recession. South Africa's GDP is expected to decline by as much as 10%. Furthermore, with supply chains severely disrupted and consumer spending dropping, but still with high demands on selected goods, some collaboration is going to be required between retailers to ensure that the nation remains fed. What's certain is that the future of retail landscape is going to be very challenging in the near future. In this podcast, we will look at some key issues for the retail sector, trying to unpack both how these issues and the opportunities can be as we look ahead to different lockdown criteria. My name is Toby Shapshak and I'm going to be your host. The regulations are somewhat confusing and luckily regulations lawyer Mike Evans, who's been looking at these from the very beginning and been a regulatory lawyer for 33 years, is able to unpack them a little bit for us. Firstly, Mike, are these regulations lawful? Give us an example, if you can, of a, of a vulnerable regulation and on what basis it could be challenged. Well, Toby, yeah, I mean, the short answer is yes, they are lawful until they are set aside. And that's a position in our law that any regulation, even if it's a bad one, even if it's unconstitutional, remains in force and can be enforced until it's set aside. But there are many of these regulations which are extremely vulnerable if they were to be challenged. I'll just give one example, and that's the limitation on the right to exercise between six and nine in the morning. Now, I have no doubt that if that regulation were to be challenged on any of four grounds, it would be set aside. So those four grounds would be, firstly, it's clearly irrational because the whole object of regulations is to limit congestion and limit social interaction. But by limiting exercise to three hours in the morning, it's increasing congestion. So it's 
irrational from that perspective. It's totally unreasonable because you have all our wonderful essential service workers like nurses and policemen and others who can't exercise because they have to go to work at seven o'clock in the morning or eight o'clock in the morning. So it's completely unreasonable in that sense. It's also, the legal term is ultra-virus, it's beyond the powers of the Act, because the Act only allows regulations that are aimed at meeting the whole object of the disaster, which is to limit congestion, limit social action in, in order to limit the spread of the virus, and it's not doing that. So it would be open to a, a, an ultra-virus challenge as well. And then fourthly, it's arguably unconstitutional as well. It, it limits the right to freedom of movement, but it doesn't do so in a way which is reasonable and justifiable. You can limit rights in the Constitution if the limitation is reasonable and justifiable, but it's not in this case. So I'm using that as an example to show how, how one regulation which affects everybody at the moment, if it were to be challenged, I think would be successfully challenged. And there are a number of others that would, would also potentially be open to challenge. Obviously, they're the controversial ones that could uh, be debated uh, either way, the tobacco ban, the alcohol ban, etc. But the one I've given is a good example of one that could never stand up to challenge. It does seem quite strange that uh, this kind of stuff has happened, hasn't it? But let's look at what powers do the ministers have in terms of what a consumer can buy and, and what is the main shift from the old regulations to the new regulations? Well, the ministers are given certain powers under the regulations. They're given powers to issue directives and their powers there are fairly limited and directives can only be issued through gazetted announcements. So we have seen a number of directives issued by a whole range of ministers. And I would say that often those directives have been lawful. They have been in line with the regulations. But what we found the ministers doing is not understanding their own powers fully or perhaps not even properly reading the regulations. Now, a good example is an issue that's, that's, that was an issue under the old regulations before we moved to level four. And that was the issue in relation to hot cooked food. Now, you had the minister of police making a very strong statement saying hot cooked food cannot be sold and they're going to take tough action against people who are selling hot cooked food. At that time, that was two weeks before the regulation was amended to prohibit the sale of hot cooked food. There was absolutely no uh, limitation at all. It was completely unlawful what the Minister of Police was doing and displayed a complete lack of understanding of the, the regulations on his part when saying that. Then that was repeated a week later by the Minister of Trade and Industry similarly saying you cannot buy hot cooked food. Now, at the time, it, there was no restriction at all. There was absolutely no limitation. And it was only after the event and after these statements were made and after these ministers, I think, had been highly embarrassed that the regulations were amended to restrict the sale of hot cooked food. Again, we could argue whether that's uh, a reasonable and justifiable regulation or not. But the point I'm making is that these ministers thought that they had the power to make statements as to what people could sell and what people could buy, when clearly they didn't. Now, you asked, Tavi, about the move from the old to the new regulations. Under the old regulations, we had things called essential goods and basic goods. And that was often open to debate. In fact, the list of essential goods went well beyond what was essential. It included things like deodorant and hair products, which probably aren't essential. When they moved to the new regulations, they were quite clever in the shift that they made because they moved from essential goods to the concept of permitted goods. 
And permitted goods means we as government permit you to buy those goods. So it became harder to to challenge. And we've seen that in the last couple of weeks during level four. It's been harder to challenge the, the list of goods. People have been arguing about them as to whether they're good or bad and whether something should be permitted or not. But there's no longer the kind of legal debate that we had under the old regulations when we dealt with essential goods and basic goods. So we now have a list of permitted goods. And what we're finding happening there now is that uh, directives are being issued as to what clothing can be bought, for example. I mean, it's getting a bit silly in, in many ways. Why should you be able to buy winter clothing and not summer clothing? I'm not sure why there is that distinction. But at the moment, we do have a list of permitted goods, which is now easier to determine whether you can or can't buy something. The confusion that we get in the regulations now is in relation to essential services. There's been a lot of debate about essential services throughout the regulations. What we had happening when the new regulations were promulgated is we had two lists of services, one committed services and one essential services. And sometimes there's an outright contradiction between the two. So, for example, many, many people in South Africa work in call centers, and there are two completely conflicting provisions relating to call centers and when you can have a call center and when you can't. So we've still got a lot of confusion, and it really, frankly, is a reflection of bad drafting. And one could say that at the beginning of the lockdown period, there was some excuse for bad drafting because of the hurried time that they had to prepare the initial regulations. As things happen, there are many, many contradictions in these regulations, many uncertainties, and that has created uh, an uncertainty in the society as a whole. This the short sleeve t-shirt thing does seem a little absurd. You can only buy it as long as you're going to wear it under some other clothes. It just shows how we have to deal in a real-time way with how the, the impact of this pandemic is occurring. And luckily, the legal eagles from Weber Wenzel are here to do that. When a disaster like this happens, people look to their leaders for comfort and guidance and to make Difficult decisions to ensure their safety, well-being, and survival. But what happens when leaders get it wrong, and how can these things be managed effectively? I'm going to ask a crisis and reputation management expert, Pooja Della. Pooja, when a crisis like COVID-19 hits, who do people look for as an immediate source of guidance? Right, Toby. You know, people look to their leaders in times of crisis to chart a way forward and to navigate um, what is generally uncertain terrain. As a nation, we look to our president, for instance, to guide us through this pandemic. Um, in much the same vein, our businesses and their employees rely on their CEOs, their directors and their management to create and implement crisis management policies, which will see their businesses survive once this is over. What could go wrong in the retail sectors from a crisis and reputational management perspective in the context of COVID-19? You know, sadly, the answer to that is many things, oftentimes unforeseen, but sometimes as a result of a failure to plan ahead for when crisis strikes. For example, we've seen many retailers being shut down for alleged non-compliance with um, the lockdown regulations because they were allegedly selling non-essential items. Um, you know, we're living in a world where uh, there's huge controversy around what constitutes non-essential items or essential goods and essential services. Um, we've heard stories about many retailers facing severe cash flow problems um, and in extreme cases, even business rescue, which will undoubtedly unsettle creditors and service providers to a business. And we'll see undoubtedly that as the outbreak becomes more widespread, retailers may well face collapse in both supply 
and demand. So you can gauge from these examples that there are really two categories of things which can go wrong. The first is internal to a business and the second is external when these events become publicized or the media becomes involved. So internally, things tend to go wrong when retailers do not have a crisis management plan in place, for instance, to manage cash flow, to pay employees whilst they're in shutdown. And these businesses will face recurring and even enduring crises if they do not keep up to date with the rapidly evolving regulatory framework and to adjust their business plans in lockstep with government decisions. Then on the external front, you know, we're talking about occurrences or events in the media that have the potential to damage the image and good name of a corporate entity or uh, an individual within an organization. For example, uh, and we see this quite a bit, um, an employee at a retail store takes to Twitter to rant about a company policy to cut salaries by 50% or um, a newspaper reporting on imminent business rescue um, of a retail business. So these are a few examples that can go wrong and which will trigger a crisis management and a reputation management response. Thank you, Pooja. I, I mean, what can businesses and, and individuals do to protect their reputation when, when a crisis like this strikes us? The answer is really twofold. And um, if we're looking internally, business and organizations must have a crisis management plan in place. And I can't stress this enough. And that plan must be implemented rigorously. All retailers are or should be revisiting their business continuity plans to reassure customers and colleagues or to manage the supply chain constraints that they might be facing and demand shocks. You know, they need to be prioritizing core business activities and creating contingency plans for disruptions that have already taken place or might take place down the line. Now, part of that plan must include, for instance, tightening up of existing internal communications policies, which will regulate how businesses and organizations communicate with their employees and service providers. Given where we are currently, you know, we're moving from one lockdown level to the next. You know, this must be included in a business's plan to phase their business back into operation when lockdown ends. Um, here, decisions will have to be made about which stores will remain open and which will remain closed and how this will impact on employees and salaries, for example. From an external perspective, the question then arises, how do you manage your reputation in times of crises on Twitter, in the newspaper, or in broadcast media? Now, the literature in this space is vast and multifaceted, but it's important to understand the key principles. And more often than not, you'll see that there's overlap, and these principles will apply equally whether you are facing internal crises or an external media-related crises. And the first step is really to stop the bleeding. So, for example, as soon as the newspaper publishes that article about your business being shut down for alleged non-compliance with the regulation, and you're now facing severe cash flow constraints, or employees are scared that they won't be paid, rapid and immediate steps must be taken to stop that harm and to ensure that there is a plan in place to look after their best interests as well as the interests of the company, and then to communicate that in the form of a PR response to the media and to manage the reputation externally if there is a need to do so. Now, equally important as that first principle is to respond quickly, but also in a manner which fosters openness, transparency, and accountability. It's vitally important not to wait for things to blow over, either in the media or internally. Silence tends to foster a sense of suspicion and speculation in the media. You know, the court of public opinion can be quite damaging to a business's brand or a reputation, particularly in a time of crisis like COVID-19. And these principles tend to apply both for an internal crisis and externally. 
Now, flowing from the above, there are very important steps which leaders and businesses must take in order to safeguard their brand and their reputation during a time of crises. These steps are critical in, and involve issues and responses in the media or internally to an organization. And these responses have to be commensurate with the nature of the crisis. Now, crafting that response appropriately is something which many businesses and leaders tend to get wrong. Part and parcel of the considerations is whether a leader or a business has in fact done something wrong and how to effectively take responsibility for that in issuing a response. Equally, if you haven't done anything wrong, um, there's still a significant amount of strategy which goes into crafting a response, which doesn't come across as defensive, dismissive or disingenuous. Underpinning all of these factors is the principle that leaders and businesses mustn't just take decisions that they can defend in due course, but they must be seen to be doing so and to be acting in the best interests of a business and their employees or service providers. How much information and the timing of that information becomes very important and how it's made available to the public, to the media or internally to an organization. And just to wrap up, you know, reputation management really is an art, especially during times of crises when leaders have immense weight on their shoulders to protect their own people, to protect their businesses. And it takes years, if not decades, to build up a corporate or individual reputation and a moment of unpreparedness to damage it. So it's important to have experts to walk leaders through uh, and businesses through times of uncertainty from a crisis and reputation management perspective. Indeed. And that was a very comprehensive and complex answer. Thank you. Because, of course, there is the thing you have to deal with, which is, is it true or isn't it true? And are you broadcasting it or publishing it in a way that can damage people? We in the media are acutely conscious of how to protect people's reputation, which is why we go to such lengths to make sure that uh, facts are correct. We've seen a significant demand for certain products in the retail space, especially basic hygiene products. We've also seen the competition authorities really driving a hard stick campaign against companies for charging excessive prices. But what is an excessive price and why don't the normal laws of supply and demand apply here? We're going to ask competition law expert Robert Wilson for some guidance on this because the Competition Tribunal recently confirmed three settlement agreements between the Competition Commission and the firms themselves accused of excessive pricing for face masks, surgical gloves and hand sanitizer. And also the tribunal is currently considering a referral from the Commission against pharmacy chain Discam for allegedly charging excessive prices for face masks. So what is the legal meaning of an excessive price and has the lockdown changed the approach of the commission and the tribunal to allegations that a supplier has charged an excessive price for a certain good or services? It's a thorny one, isn't it, Robert? It is. And the use of the term a hard stick might be appropriate um, in the present circumstances. And I'll touch on that a little later regarding the interplay between advocacy and enforcement. But to answer your question more particularly relating to what is an excessive price, in the first instance, it applies only in relation to so-called dominant firms. Those are firms that have a significant share of a market. But in broad terms, a firm is dominant if it is able to behave in a manner that is independent of its competitors, suppliers, or customers. Only if you are a dominant firm does the prohibition against charging an excessive price cut against you. And what constitutes an excessive price is 
a term that has been in our statute for many years, from the inception back in 1998, but was amended this past year. And in broad terms, a price will be excessive where the price charged for a good or service is higher than what would be the competitive price. And importantly, where the difference between the price charged and the competitive price, where there is no reasonable explanation for that difference, which then comes down to the crucial question, well, what is the competitive price? And there the Competition Act makes it very clear that when the tribunal considers what a competitive price is, it must take into account various factors that are set out in the Act. The onus then is on the respondent or the accused firm who has been shown to have charged a price that is higher than the competitive price. That firm bears the onus to show that the difference is not an unreasonable difference. But importantly, in the first instance, it is up to the commission or a complainant to show what the competitive price would have been with reference to the factors set out in the Act. What is also important to bear in mind is that a firm that is proven to have charged an excessive price can be exposed to a penalty of up to 10% of its turnover or its exports from South Africa. Now, going to these factors that the Competition Tribunal needs to take into account are broadly with reference to five categories. The first is with reference to what the accused firm's own costs are in a particular set of circumstances. The secondly is with reference to what the firm did charge for the same good or services in other markets or in relation to other customers. The third is with reference to a third party's with comparative third parties' prices and costs. And then more broadly, with reference to structural characteristics of the market, the Minister of Trade, Industry and Competition, Ibram Patel, is entitled to publish regulations that will need to be taken into account by the Competition Tribunal when determining whether a price is a competitive price and whether it is excessive. And this is really where we come to in the context of COVID-19. The Minister of Trade and Industry has purported to publish regulations pursuant to the powers given to him under the Act to set out criteria that the tribunal must take into account in determining whether a price is excessive. And he did so back on the 19th of March when he published regulations. And in those regulations, it is very clear that the price setting guidelines he has given to the tribunal are only in relation to particular consumer goods basic food and consumer items, emergency products and services, medical and hygiene supplies, and emergency cleanup products and services. If you as a retailer are selling any products that fall within these four broad categories, then ostensibly you are at risk of being investigated by the Competition Commission for charging an excessive price in circumstances where that price is higher than the competitive price as determined by the minister. And importantly, what these regulations go on and say is that in determining whether a price is an excessive price, the tribunal must have regard to the so-called a material price increase. The regulations go one step further and say a material price increase will be a critical factor to determine whether a price is excessive, such that the onus is on the accused firm to disprove the excessiveness of that price. But there are a number of worrying aspects about this regulation. 
First of all, the minister does have the power to promulgate regulation to give guidance to the tribunal to determine what is excessive and excessive price. But that power to promulgate regulation follows on the fact of the minister first having issued draft regulations for public comment, and he didn't do so in the present circumstances. Secondly, what's problematic about the regulations is that they say that it is a critical factor to determine that there has been a material price increase, and that is given specificity in the regulations further by saying that if you as a firm are charging a price now that is not equal to or bears no correspondence to what your costs are and an increase in your costs, then that will be prima facie excessive. Furthermore, if your prices now, the margin that you're earning on on your products or services, are not equal to or bear no correspondence to what your average margin was over December 2019 and January and February 2020, then there too, your price will be prima facie excessive. Now, there's a problem in this particular regulation because, as I said earlier, when the tribunal determines whether a price is excessive, it must take into account all relevant factors, not only a factor that the minister, by way of regulation, has determined to be a critical factor. Be that as it may, we are now living with these regulations, and the next question is, well, what about them? Well, over and above the minister promulgating these regulations, he also promulgated regulations relating to the rules of the tribunal that allow the Competition Commission to refer a matter to the Competition Tribunal relating to an alleged excessive price in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. And there the tribunal is able to conduct its proceedings in a very, very expedited manner, such that a firm that is accused and referred to the tribunal has a matter of only 72 hours to file its answering affidavit. And the tribunal then can conduct its proceedings either by way of audio or by a video conference facilities and make a final determination as to whether, in fact, a firm has contravened the Act. So there there's been a definite change both in the law and the tribunal's processes, and then also importantly in relation to the Competition Commission's processes. We're seeing, as you said earlier, the Commission waving a big stick. And we've seen to date three settlements before the tribunal where the parties have effectively agreed, or they have agreed, to settle with the Commission. And in those circumstances, the tribunal has no regard to the evidence as to whether, in fact, the parties have charged excessive prices. They simply confirm that settlement agreement as an order. And one must question here whether, in fact, the Commission is going after the right parties because the settlements we have seen have been settlements in relation to an individual pharmacy, an individual hardware store. And one has to ask in the circumstances, how in heaven's name could these even be dominant firms? And the Commission's argument is, well, within the context of the current pandemic, there are a number of factors that may change market dynamics such that a single pharmacy or single hardware store could in fact be dominant in a very narrow geographic area. You say that the Minister of Trade, Industry and Competition may have acted unlawfully in promulgating the pricing regulations, as well as the Competition Tribunal rules for adjudicating excessive pricing cases. In your view, what did the Minister do wrong? And if you are correct that he did act unlawfully, given the current national disaster and very real risk of price gouging for some suppliers. Does the end not justify the means? And if not, should the Competition Commission and the Competition Tribunal 
have acted more independently to prevent this arguably excessive executive overreach. As I've said earlier on, the Competition Act provides that the minister may pass regulations in particular circumstances. And those are that before he makes those regulations, he must consult with the Competition Commission and he must publish those regulations in the Government Gazette as draft regulations, stating where copies of them can be found. And then he needs to take comment from the public on those draft regulations. That is a a requirement under the statute that cannot be waived by virtue of subsequent ministerial fiat. And the minister, as far as I am aware, did not publish these as draft regulations. They came out on the 19th of March, and there's a provision in them that says that any person may make representations regarding these regulations, following which the minister may amend them. But the fact of the matter is that they came into effect on the date that they were promulgated in the Gazette, and they will remain in effect for as long as the pandemic disaster lasts. So the minister appears to have created some sort of hybrid mechanism whereby he published them, they became effective immediately, but people may still comment on them, and then he might decide to amend them, taking those comments into account. There may be arguments to say, well, this is a procedural irregularity. It doesn't go to the substance of the regulations, but it does beg the question in an open, transparent democracy whether it's appropriate for the minister simply to ignore the prescription under the Petition Act regarding the publication of draft regulations. Secondly, the test that he has set for the tribunal when determining whether a price is excessive is a prescriptive test and arguably removes the tribunal's broad discretion under the Act to take into account all relevant factors, not only the factor that he has determined by proclamation as being a critical factor. So there there's a question as to whether, in fact, the tests that he has set out in the regulations are legally permissible. And then the question regarding using the tribunal as some sort of fast-track mechanism. The Competition Act already makes provision that where irreparable harm might be suffered by a complainant and the balance of convenience lies in granting interim relief to that complainant. There are provisions in the Competition Act and the tribunal rules to allow for a matter to be heard expeditiously by way of truncated proceedings, by way of hearings that need not necessarily be in open forum before the tribunal. And I do question why it was necessary for the minister to pass these rules, these new rules, and why, frankly, the tribunal has gone along accepting these as rules in circumstances where the Act provides for interim relief applications to be heard and for an order to be given for interim relief pending the final determination of the matter when the the facts could be more properly and fully ventilated before the tribunal. But now what happens is that the tribunal is enjoined to consider the matter expeditiously. It does have a discretion, admittedly, to decide not to do so. And it is incumbent on the commission when referring the matter to argue for urgency. But to date, what we are seeing is that the tribunal, both in relation to the current DISCA matter and to an an earlier matter, the tribunal has decided to go along with these fast-track proceedings to the point that it will not simply grant interim relief, but will actually give final relief on the papers without these very complicated factual and economic considerations being ventilated fully in an open forum. 
And there, I do think the minister has got it wrong in terms of the regulations. But to go to your question, well, even if he did get it wrong, does the end not justify the means, given the, the dire situation we are in? I will argue that nowhere can the, the end justify the means in circumstances where we live in a constitutional democracy and where our national executive need to follow the prescripts not only of the primary statute under which regulations are passed, but also the constitution. The public will only respect the law when the law makes sense and when government can explain the law to the public. And when we start seeing the erosion of the application and adherence to the law by the executive, that only feeds the fires for non-compliance by broader society. Thank you, Robert. Finally, regardless of the legal failings you have identified, how should clients, and particularly large clients, who supply essential goods and services set their prices during the lockdown and even beyond that? And do you have any guidance for clients who have alleged to have charged excessive prices? What, what should they be doing? Well, in the context of the retail sector, clients need to look at what their usual pricing methodologies are. If you are a retailer that uses a high-low pricing method, whereby you are constantly pricing up or down, depending on the vagaries of the market, you need to then be very aware that high-low pricing will result in consumers drawing comparisons and possibly suggesting that your current pricing is excessive because it bears no relationship to what the price may have been, particularly in the three months from 1 December 2019 to 29 February 2020. Even if you're an everyday low discount price setter, like some retailers, you may nevertheless run promotions at various times in the month. And that too may create variation in pricing and consumers drawing incorrect comparisons between your prices. That in turn may give the customer reason to lodge a complaint either with the Competition Commission or with the National Consumer Protection Authorities. In those circumstances, what we've seen is that the, these two regulators don't use a very sophisticated, and some might say don't use any filtering technique to weed out the spurious complaints from those that may have some merit and put questions to the accused firms. So as a retailer with the potential of consumers lodging complaints with the authorities against your pricing, you may face a potential investigation. But before you, the matter is investigated, you'll be receiving some other request for information from the authorities. And my advice there is, is answer the request because nine times out of 10, you're likely to be able to explain either why the consumer simply got it wrong or why there are in fact reasons for um, any apparent price difference. Facing an investigation or a screening investigation is one thing. Facing a threatened prosecution from the Competition Commission saying that they will take you to the tribunal unless you reach some sort of settlement with them. Firms may be very quick to make a commercial call and say, well, actually, what's it going to cost me to simply agree to pay a nominal penalty and, as we've seen in the case of the tribunal more recently, undertaking to donate hand sanitizers to an old age home? Well, there again, there's a slippery slope. And business needs to guard against this kind of regulatory creep, and some might say regulatory extortion, just simply to make the matter go away. And yes, I understand that the commercial imperatives are such that one may want to do so. But where does it end? 
And one needs to question whether settling too quickly might have been opportunistic and whether it creates a precedent for the Commission to either come after you as a firm yourself down the road in questionable circumstances or other firms. But assuming you do resist and you say that the Commission has no basis to prosecute you, can you then raise some of the issues I've suggested regarding flaws in the regulations? And arguably, you cannot. In the first instance, you would need to raise them with the tribunal in your pleadings, but you'd have to then go on and plead over on the merits of the commission's case. And if ultimately the tribunal finds against you, these procedural and substantive defects may well be the reason for you to want to take the matter to the competition appeal court on appeal or review. But bear in mind that if ever the matter is taken forward, to the appellate authority, the Competition Appeal Court, you will still need to implement the order of the tribunal unless you've applied to the court to, to stay the implementation of that order. So given these complexities, both in terms of law, substantive legal considerations and procedural, one can understand that clients may want to simply settle if they have to face a prosecution. But my, my warning here is, Settle at your own peril if you are settling simply for opportunistic or expedient grounds. With consumers limited to buying only the essentials, retailers have had their bottom lines hit and may be struggling to pay their rent. Lease-related issues have obviously been coming to you in abundance, haven't they, Mark McIntosh? Toby, thank you. Um, an interesting question and quite a difficult one to deal with because it's one where there really isn't a single answer. Just to go back to, to what you were saying at the outset about some tenants in particularly large shopping malls, especially those who have not been able to trade at all, because of their financial constraints, are they consequently relinquished from their obligation to pay rental? I think the, the simple answer there is no, they're not. So our common law provides for these kinds of scenarios, acts of God, things like floods and uh, man-made events such as wars. All of these things have been considered over the years in our courts or um, under various cases dealing with a multitude of issues that create impossibility for parties to perform. Is a pandemic like COVID-19, would that be something that would create an impossibility to perform? In other words, both contracting parties, in this case the landlord, can't perform because they're unable to give occupation. Um, and a tenant likewise is unable to perform if they're not selling essential services because they don't have access to the premises and they cannot trade. That is what is generally known as the law of supervening impossibility of performance. And a couple of points about this. The performance must be objectively impossible. And that brings us back to your opening comments about uh, financial constraint. Is a financial constraint that a tenant is suffering, does that create an objective impossibility? And the answer is, of course, no. It's a subjective impossibility. It's not that every tenant uh, would be unable to pay. It's that that particular tenant in those circumstances cannot pay. Objective impossibility implies a scenario where neither party using the best will in the world is able to perform. And the law does give some relief under those circumstances. In the lease scenario, the law allows the tenant a reduction in rental, which may be as much as 100%. 
but maybe less than 100% if circumstances dictate that it should be. So, for example, there have been cases in our history where in war times, a particular tenant wasn't able to occupy the premises that he had hired. But during the time of the war, his goods were stored in the premises. So although the court granted him a remission of rental, it obviously made a finding based on the fact that he had had some partial occupation and for that partial occupation was obliged to pay a portion of the rental. Now, why are we seeing so many different opinions and different views published by attorneys, published by landlords and sometimes even published by tenants? The source of the information usually dictates the answer. So if I'm an attorney acting for a large landlord, that landlord has a set of leases which are common to almost all its tenants, and it almost always uses that particular lease, that will, lease will contain a number of provisions which may or may not support my arguments as an attorney that that landlord's tenants should continue to pay the rental. To the extent that I can find support for that argument in the lease, and because I'm acting for the landlord, I will take the line that the tenants, of course, must pay. Uh, If I'm acting for the tenants, on the other hand, I will, using exactly the same lease agreement, be looking for the opposite outcome. As we know in law, clauses in documents, clauses in agreements, are very often capable of more than one interpretation. So I don't think it's surprising that there are so many different views out there. Uh, And this is how we have advised our clients, and this is across both spectrums, both landlords and tenants. The general rule is, I think, you should pay your rental. And the reason you should pay is largely because of the way your lease is going to be worded. Your lease will almost always certainly say that you must pay in advance, firstly, So the obligations are not reciprocal. You're not paying after you've received occupation. At the end of your occupation, you're paying at the outset. The second point is most leases contain clauses which require you to pay without deduction or set-off. Now, I suppose tenants would say to me, but hang on a moment, if I make the payment, isn't there a risk that I may not receive part of that payment back by way of reduction? at a later point. And of course, yes, there is a risk associated with that, but there is likewise a risk associated with not paying. And the risk is that you potentially might be in default of your lease agreement. And depending on the particular lease and the way it's worded, your default may actually also lead to the landlord's having right to cancel. So broadly speaking, most lease agreements don't contain clauses that we're all familiar with, the sort of They're generally called force majeure clauses or sometimes vis majeure. They mean slightly different things. And because most leases don't contain those clauses, we almost always fall back on the law of supervening impossibility of performance. That says we're entitled to a remission if performance is impossible by both parties. And that remission in most instances will be calculated post your payment date. In other words, make the payment, then request the landlord to permit you a reduction in rental. And that calculation will be based on a number of factors, including the extent to which you have been able to enjoy occupation during the period uh, of lockdown. 
Of course, when we're talking about rental, people sometimes also mention things like operation costs. That's the landlord's cost to run the building. We would generally regard those as payable by the tenant. We, we don't see that there would normally be a right to a reduction of those costs because those are obviously costs associated with the landlord's ownership of the building and they are costs that are important to you as a tenant because if the property is repossessed by the local authority for the non-payment of rates or if the property is not secured, that equally places your particular shop or trade at risk and we do feel that it's necessary to support the landlords uh, and we think a legal obligation to, to pay those costs. All of this is dependent ultimately on the wording of your lease agreement. So whatever I say or anyone else says, ultimately we're all going to go and have a look at your lease agreement and we're all going to seek reasons in that agreement why you should or should not pay. To the extent that disputes develop, then obviously court or an arbitrator will ultimately have to decide whose interpretation of the agreement or a particular clause in the agreement was correct. Uh, and to avoid you being at risk of cancellation and you following what is almost always the legal position in most lease agreements, rather pay the rental up front, claim your remission. If the landlord refuses to pay, well, then the matter may well be ripe for dispute and then one will have to follow the dispute resolution provisions in the particular lease agreement. All rent, some rent, no rent. Are there any government or other relief measures in place for tenants and landlords, Mark? In so far, Toby, as whether there are other relief measures in place for tenants and landlords, uh, we haven't seen any relief measures granted by the government at this stage, but certainly landlords as a group and particularly uh, large retail center landlords have come together and have made various offers to their tenants. And they've done that largely to try and achieve uh, agreement uh, with their tenants without entering into disputes and also obviously to try and generate some income for themselves because while the tenants can't pay during this period or is going to struggle to pay, the landlords likewise have their own obligations that they must also meet. So they have sought to, to try and find agreement. Uh, landlords have, for example, offered deferrals. You don't have to pay now, but you do have to pay in the future. When you pay, you can pay over a period of, say, six months, and that repayment will be interest-free. Most landlords are prepared to assist their tenants because not only do they have business and commercial relationships with, with those tenants, but they, they need to ensure the future existence of those shopping centers, those large retail malls from both the landlord and the tenant's perspective. Some of these uh, principles you're discussing, do they apply to other contractor obligations, cleaning and maintenance and other support staff? Uh, Toby, yes, thanks. So I have been involved in, in dealing with a lot of uh, supply contracts um, in, during this time. And the legal principles that apply to leases, you know, a lease is nothing more than a supply contract where the subject matter is, is property. Where I said that we don't normally find force majeure clauses in leases, we almost always find them in other supply contracts. 
And those force majeure clauses, I've seen examples that say if such an event occurs, like COVID-19, the pandemic, then neither party needs to perform their obligations. And the contract is essentially suspended during that time until the pandemic ends. There are other instances on the opposite end of the scale where the clause might say, notwithstanding the pandemic, you are obliged to continue paying even if I am not able to render the service. So the, the underlying legal principles are identical, but the contracts themselves usually differ in the way that I've described. Indeed, Mark, isn't it? It's a juggle between keeping your own business and keeping your associated businesses going at the same time as trying to keep the economy going. Because there's so much crucial information about the retailing sector, we've decided to split this podcast into two. And you can find the second part the same place that you found this one. I'm your host, Toby Shapshak. The production is done by volume and the executive producer is Paula Youngins. This is a podcast of Weber Wenzel and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. You can find and subscribe to the podcast on all major platforms. For more expert legal insights and updates, visit WeberWenzel.com.